Also, yes. Okay. But also, yes. <laughs> no. Um, just a couple things really quick. You guys know we have this week and then next week, and then we're moving to our 1801 location for our soft opening on June 5th, and then our <clears throat> first official to the public sort of service on June 12th. Uh, we're having the Lord's table here <clears throat> next Sunday, our last time together here at McCurdy. I think it's a great way to kind of finish off our almost six years of worship together here in this building. There's been a lot of cool stuff that's happened, and now as we embark on this new uh, time in our church life, uh, we want to start off by celebrating what God has done here together, um, and next week's passage fits perfectly with it, so I'm very excited about that. So, um, <clears throat> The other thing is, too, there's still going to be a significant amount of like touch-up, clean-up work to do, mostly on the outside of the church and some on the inside, so... On the next couple of Saturdays, there'll be some of us there. If you'd like to come by and lend a hand a little bit, mostly stuff that I want you to carry that's heavy so I don't have to, that'd be great, okay? But uh, no, seriously, there's some things to do if you wanted to show up, and uh, it's not like a formal work day like we had before, but some of us will be there moving things around, cleaning stuff up, and getting ready. So it's a lot to still to do, but things are coming together. <clears throat> there's a group of people that, uh, both part of the church and outside the church, that I will recognize on June 12th that have just been working relentlessly. Every time I go in the building, they're there. And it's just been amazing to see. So, But for this week, we're going to continue with our series on the book of Revelation. Uh, this is week eight. It's signs of a dying church. <clears throat> so <clears throat> pretend with me for a moment. What if Grace Life received a letter directly from Jesus? And basically, the letter said this, Grace Life, you are dying. Repent. Return to the gospel or be judged. That would be a hard one to read in community. So the question is, is Grace Life a living, vibrant, faithful, obedient church? If Jesus did write a letter specifically to us, would he be able to list at the beginning, like he does with the other letters that we've read in Revelation, would he be able to list any good works? Or would it be like this one where there is nothing good? about the church to write. So as the pastor of Grace Life, I worry about this constantly. And then, invariably, what happens is I see God use our church for his kingdom, and then my anxiety about whether or not we are a dying church or a thriving church begins to fade a little bit for an hour. <laughs> and then I worry about it again. <clears throat> and why do I worry so much about this as the pastor? Why, why do I worry? Well, question is, do you ever think about this? I mean, if you are at all emotionally, spiritually, or financially vested in grace life, you should also be asking these questions. Look, we're not a perfect church. No church is, that's for sure. But are we alive? I will say that I'll give you more evidence on this later, but I believe right now, today, we are most definitely a alive and thriving church. Can we stay alive? That's another question. Frankly, what does a dying church look like? Is it low attendance? No money? Lots of conflict? Are those even the proper metrics to measure whether or not a church is thriving or dying? Look, just because a church has lots of money, lots of people, and a good reputation, and looks vibrant, it can still be a dead church. That's what we're going to be studying today. We will see that today, in week eight of our series on Revelation, we'll learn what a dying church looks like. We'll also learn how to be assured that Grace Life isn't a dying church 
and promises that we won't become one. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has sent the seven spirits of God, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent it. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has, has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> There's a lot of interesting history there with this passage. I want you to see that Sardis is a dying city and the church there is a dead church. Let's look at first the concept of Sardis being this dying city. At one time, this city Sardis that this letter is written to was a major power center. It was serving both as a main capital and then after that a regional capital for a couple of different empires. Sardis was for many generations a, a very powerful military stronghold for centuries. Many people thought it was an unconquerable city because of that. It had great wealth and great prestige. But over time, Sardis became lazy. The city became complacent. And what would happen is instead of invade the city with, a, with an army from the outside, Sardis would get lazy and invaders would sneak in, become a part of the city, and then bring it down. First time it happened, it was conquered. Everybody was shocked. Wow, we can't ever let that happen again. Well, guess what happened? About 250 years later, the exact same strategy was used and it was conquered again. Twice. After that second conquering, Sardis began to lose power and its influence, and the city began to slowly deteriorate, a victim of its own complacent leisure. It still held an immense amount of wealth from its past, but there was no real thriving industry like we saw in Thyatira or Ephesus. The population in uh, Sardis was There was no economic mobility to go up. Nothing to draw new people or new industries. It was a dying city, and it was described like, like this by one person. I found this. This was the best description. Sardis is a peaceful city, though not through success, but because the city's dreams have died. There's no imagination and no ambition. So just to give you an idea of a modern-day comparison, in America, I think a good comparison could be Detroit. Don't take it personally. Detroit was once the manufacturing powerhouse in America, perhaps even the world, and it was that way for decades. Detroit was wealthy, powerful, home to some of the greatest companies in the world. It was, in fact, one of America's fastest growing cities for a long time. And then in the early 2000s, for many reasons that I'm not going to go into, the auto manufacturing industry in Detroit began to fail. And as a result, that industry began to migrate to other cities and even other countries. And that started an irreversible slide by almost every metric you can measure. 
And after the global financial crisis, about six years later, this wealthy, once wealthy, powerful city filed for bankruptcy. And poverty and crime exploded. And even to this day, you see whole neighborhoods without streetlights, houses dilapidated, empty. And it's a sad story. This is what Sardis was, <clears throat> but not quite to the level that Detroit has gotten to. Or, and Detroit's starting to turn around in some ways, but that is the story and that is the comparison. But then there's also this dead church within this dying city. So let me show you a couple of pictures. These are pretty fascinating. So I want you to see this. This is a place of worship. There are several elements you'll see on the floor, and, and, and I'm just going to point out that there are, there are three things I want you to see. See the, the statues of the lions. That's the synagogue aspect, the Jewish aspect. There's some, there's some Christian symbols in the back wall that you can't see. And then you see this, this table where the, this altar sort of is. You see the eagle on the side right there. That represents Rome, Caesar worship. So here you have this place of worship. It's got Jewish, Christian, and Roman symbols right there. This is the church in Sardis. As a matter of fact, watch this picture. So there is an example of another place of worship. This might have been a synagogue, I'm not sure, but this is what, how they all were. You know what's right behind it? The ruins of a Roman bathhouse. Do you know what happened in Roman bathhouses? So here's this place of worship right next to a Roman bathhouse. This was the church in Sardis. There's archaeological proof of why Jesus had to write this letter in Revelation chapter 3. The church in Sardis is dead. It was the opposite, the antithesis of Smyrna and Ephesus that we've already studied, those churches. And just like the city, the church at Sardis lived off its reputation of past glory, but it really become powerless and impotent. On the outside, the church looks alive, but it was just merely surviving on heritage, reputation. And Jesus says, you are dead. They became experts, the church in Sardis, at blending into the culture rather than being a lampstand for truth within it. There was no proclamation. They abandoned the most offensive, and I put that in quotations, the most offensive parts of the gospel. You know, the parts where Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The parts about you must repent from immorality. You must have righteous living as one of the fruits of your faith. Those were abandoned in their preaching. And while other churches that we've read about faced severe persecution for their faithfulness to the gospel, the church in Sardis lived in complete comfort and peace with the culture around them. Why? You see why. You understand, to do that in the first century, to be a Christian church and not have any Persecution, which we've studied a lot, by the way, right, in First and Second Peter. To live in the first century church that way, at peace with society, you had to totally give in to what we learned a couple of weeks ago called syncretism. Meaning Caesar worship became the first line of religion, and then you blended all the pagan rituals in with it, and then added your own. That was the cultural expectation. Look, the church in Sardis had money. It had people acceptance by society, they were conflict-free, and Jesus says they are dead. They were so successful of blending into the culture, it became a fake church, a dead church, beautiful on the outside, decomposing on the inside, and Megan mentioned this verse. This is 
exactly a description of Sardis. It's what Jesus called the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness that comes with it, as you could imagine. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's the scariest part about this historical section. Sardis, the church, thought they were doing great. But they were dying. Any church today could be like Sardis. So that's the historical part of our passage. Let's look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do? And how, why and how does he do it? What we see here is a church without the spirit is a dead church. Jesus introduces himself right away in chapter 3, verse 1. He introduces himself as the one who holds the seven spirits in his hands. If you remember, each letter begins with the description that he gave himself to John in chapter 1 of Revelation. Each one he picks out, and it relates to what he's saying to that church. Here he says, behold, listen to me, I'm the one that has the seven spirits in his hands. It's a flashback to week 2. Do you remember what we learned? what those seven spirits were. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. The spirit of the Lord, there's one spirit, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, there's two. And understanding, there's three. The spirit of counsel, there's four. The spirit of might, that's five. The spirit of knowledge, that's six. The fear of the Lord, that's seven. Those are the seven spirits. It's seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit. Jesus holds the fullness, the seven spirits in his hands. It's a picture of Jesus holding the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his hands. In other words, he controls the Holy Spirit. He directs the Holy Spirit. He sends it to his church for his purposes. And so why does Jesus start off this letter with saying, Behold, I'm the one that holds the seven spirits? It is a clue to why Sardis had become this dead church. It was no longer empowered by this Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't affirm any good works. He says you have the reputation of good works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are, in fact, dead. Wow. You appear vibrant. You appear successful. You have all the glitz and glamour of a successful church, but you aren't royal priests. You are, in fact, dead priests. How does this happen? How can a church full of people who have ears to hear no longer have the Holy Spirit? It's a rhetorical question. It can't happen. He says, your works are incomplete. See, this is the reason why Sardis is a dead church. Watch this, okay? Your works are incomplete. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. Paul wrote this to the Philippian church, which we know was alive and thriving, even though they were under tremendous persecution. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus. And we know the day of Jesus is always referred to when he comes like what? A thief? That's what Jesus says here. If you don't repent and trust the gospel that you first heard, I'm going to come like a thief. But Philippians 1.6 is an example of a church that had works that were being completed. Sardis is an example of a church that has works that aren't complete. Paul was writing to the Philippian church here. He was confident in their works. He knew they would be complete. You can see the difference between Philippi and Sardis. And how does Jesus complete those works? He completes them through the Holy Spirit that he declares and he commands and he holds in his hands. Watch this in Luke chapter 24, 49. 
I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What was that promise? It was the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we know what happened, right? It's coming up soon. Pentecost. Jesus says, how will you stay alive? How will you have power? Through the Spirit that I will send. The fact is this. No church can take credit for its good works. It's a result of the Holy Spirit. And you guys know I've taught you my favorite passage, Ephesians 2. We were dead. He made us alive. And he's prepared us for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should. And the language actually says, trip over. But here's the thing. A church can be full of people who say they believe, but they have no works. It's a sign that Jesus has actually not sent his spirit. This was the church of Sardis. Those within it did not have the Holy Spirit. They had no ears that could hear the shepherd's voice. Remember, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. I know them and they follow me. When Jesus calls his sheep, they hear, they follow, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to empower them to good works that he will complete. See, following Jesus cannot be just a stagnant, a stagnant statement. The Spirit ensures that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will have a life of continual journey closer to him. And Jesus says to the church, look, there's not much left. What is remaining is like maybe an ember glowing in a fire that once burned brightly. Wake up before it's too late. Return to what you have heard. And what does he mean by that? Return to the gospel. Repent. Hear my voice or I will have to judge you when I return like a thief. So we see a couple of things here. We see soiled garments versus clean garments. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus describes Sardis as a church full of people, with the exception of a very few, with soiled garments. And listen, this is a disgusting graphic symbol. It's a reference to the Old Testament. To Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have all become, one like, uh, become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. That's what this is a reference to. This is another beautiful Old Testament connection, one of hundreds in the book of Revelation. And the image of polluted garments is as disgusting and as bad as you can imagine it. I'm not going to go into detail. Do I need to do that? Just, just, ugh, okay? However, there is a handful of people who says, Jesus says, there are some names, individuals, who are still clothed in unsoiled, pure white garments, the garments of the faithful. They had more than a legacy of faithfulness. They still had ears to hear, and they were empowered by the seven spirits in the hands of Jesus. Their faith displayed virtue. Goes back to 1 Peter. Their faith displayed virtue, knowledge, reverence, self-control, stability, brotherly love, and love for their fellow man. The ones in Sardis who will conquer, he says, those who conquer. That's the Greek word Nike that we've learned about, right? And where do we see that? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 comes up again. Who is he that overcomes the world? He that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 
The ones in Sardis who conquer will hear his voice. They will follow. And it says, Jesus says, they will never have their names removed from the book of life. Now, look, this is important. This cannot be taken as a reverse statement, a statement indicating that Jesus might blot out some names. Some people will teach it. Incorrect. No. Jesus always, Philippians 1.6, completes his good works. This is a beautiful affirmation that those who have ears to hear the shepherd's voice will never be like Sardis. They will never have their names blotted out. They will have the spirit that completes their good works. That's the theological or the spiritual part of Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at the personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do with this? I'm asking this question. Is grace life alive or dead? This was a preview I wrote this week. What if Jesus wrote a letter saying your church was beautiful outside but a rotting corpse on the inside? I put FYI two weeks left at McCurdy's in case somebody didn't come to church and see that letter. So <laughs> something there. But that's a tough question, isn't it? What would a letter to the church in Sarasota look like? Not just Grace Life, Sarasota in general. Well, as with any city, we certainly have our problems. <clears throat> there are churches, sadly, in Sarasota and, frankly, all across America, just like Sardis, with a rich legacy and a reputation, but they're just living on the past. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. See, this is the most frightening part of this whole letter, right? They look beautiful, they appear to be thriving with money and facilities and numbers, but their works are incomplete. I'm not going to name any of these churches, that's not my job. But they're in every city, outwardly impressive, but inside full of soiled garments. So how can you spot a dead church? Even one that looks great on the outside. Well... I'm going to give you a list of some things to look for. First of all, dead churches have more passion for activism, for politics, or public policy, left and right, than proclaiming the gospel. When a church becomes obsessed with what's happening in the government today, either side of the aisle, more than the gospel, that's a dying church. Because that's not a message of power, is it? The gospel is the power to salvation. Dead churches will put their liturgy ahead of seeking and finding, hurting people where they are and loving them where they're at. Dead churches are better at branding or marketing than they are at preaching, teaching, loving, and serving. Dead churches can have money, but be poor in love and virtue. They stay away from the gritty, in-the-trenches ministries. Dead churches are obsessed with cultural issues but have little to no interest in theological depth or influence. Dead churches become defined by their facilities, which sadly becomes a replacement for their good works, like the Crystal Cathedral, for example. <clears throat> Dead churches abandon an offensive part of the gospel, salvation by faith alone in Jesus, replacing it with a social gospel or a liberation gospel or a prosperity gospel, invoking Jesus when it's convenient or expedient, just like politicians do. 
These types of churches like Sardis can look alive, but without the gospel, without the power of the Holy Spirit, they are dead, full of dead men's bones and soiled garments. But there's another type of church. Look at this from Ezekiel. This passage has about eight or nine Old Testament references. I just picked a few today. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Well, it doesn't get any, any simpler than that. I love that verse. See, when a church is passionate, active in the royal priesthood that we learned about in First and Second Peter, you know that Jesus has done what? He has sent the seven spirits in his hands. When a church is empowered by that spirit, there will be an unmistakable evidence that Jesus is completing his works. And healthy churches can look very different from one another. There are many different, beautiful styles, but they all have some things in common. A healthy church is full of people who battle complacency, never resting on past obedience, always heeding the call to new, fresh, biblical kingdom work, always desiring to walk closer to Jesus. A healthy church loves its community that it's in, while somehow loving them but boldly proclaiming the gospel message, even if it's a little bit offensive. I mean, have you ever read some of the things Jesus said? Our Lord was compassionate and merciful, but his message was offensive. It's why they wanted to kill him. A healthy church will be innovative. They won't be overly zealous for traditions that have outlived their usefulness for kingdom work or the royal priesthood. That's an important one. I don't know if you know this, but Grace Life has some traditions that we could be overly zealous for if we're not careful, even though we're only six years old. A healthy church is always surprisingly generous, acknowledging that everything belongs to our Jesus anyway. But most importantly, a healthy church never tries to change or adapt the gospel because a healthy church knows it is the power of God to salvation, and we are not ashamed of it. This letter to the church in Sardis should be read in community by all churches with humility so that we are never comfortable or complacent or satisfied with where we are. Now, here's the good news. There are many great churches in our city that are powered by the Spirit to complete works. And they're all different from us. And this is not an exhaustive list, so if you know of one I did and I left it out, don't take that as meaning they're not on this list. Just some off the top of my head as I was writing this. I think of South Shore community church. You know, that was my church when my wife and I first moved back to Sarasota. We were grieving, hurting, and they shepherded us back to health, back into ministry. I'm forever grateful for them. Grace Community Church, a church full of the power of the Holy Spirit, who's been surprisingly generous with us, helping us with our food pantry. Southside Baptist Church just gave us about 120 chairs to borrow because ours won't be in until the end of July. 360 Church, Steve McCoy, the pastor there, a good friend of mine. They've been so wonderful to me and to us in ways you have no idea. Covenant Life Church. There are so many other great churches that have the Spirit of God, that have works that are being completed. And if Jesus wrote them a letter, he would say, I know your works. This is what you're doing well. 
We are at Grace Life. We are grateful for these other congregations, for the role many have played in my family's life personally. I've been a part of some of these churches. I've worked for them or with them. And even today, relationally, Grace Life is deeply connected to them. Many of their pastors actually serve on Grace Life's overseer group. If there was a problem with me, if I fell into sin or we had an issue of conflict within our church, they would be the group to help us resolve it. I personally am accountable to them. As a matter of fact, Grace Life would not be a church without some of these other congregations. We, Grace Life, are part of their good works. Isn't that beautiful? These churches today still help us fulfill our good works in the community. And you know what? We help them too. As I was talking to these guys this week, they shared some things they look, for, look to us for. These are humbling. And it makes me grateful to Jesus for the works he has given Grace Life that these churches admire about us. Little old Grace Life. They all said they admire our love for truth and how we teach it and how we defend it. They express the way they look to us this for theological accountability. They admire the works that Jesus has given us for mercy and recovery, among other ministries. This isn't an arrogance thing. This is very humbling. We all know all these churches, Grace Life included, any good works we have are given by who? Jesus Christ through the Spirit in his hands. These congregations together are what a thriving church community in Sarasota looks like when it is busy with proclamation, integrity, and industry. Look, we aren't perfect. But together we have complete works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we need to stay that way. How? Well, we, Grace Life, must together with these other congregations never cease preaching the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. It's by the gospel. By the way, the gospel was the remedy that Jesus said the church in Sardis needed. It is by the gospel that our Jesus sends the spirits that, in his, that are in his hands to the hearts of those who have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Because we... The churches are filled with that spirit. Because of that, we will overcome. 1 John chapter 5. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And because of 1 John 5, because of the spirit, here's what I can tell you. Grace life, these other churches, we will not have our names removed from the book of life. Heavenly Dad, I just pray that the churches in Sarasota, that some of them I mentioned today, that you would protect us from the temptation of compromise. Lord, I pray that you would keep us as a live and thriving church with proclamation, integrity, and industry, surprising generosity, with innovation and love. Thank you for the impact these other congregations have had on us, and thank you for the impact we have on them. And Lord, we give you all the glory and all the credit because we know who we are without you. We are dead. You've made us alive. 
And we have confidence that you will complete this good work until the day that you return. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. See you guys next week for the Lord's table.